Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Welcome to the June episode of the Open Apple Podcast. I'm Mike McGinnis. And I'm Ken Gagney. Oh, Ken, how are you this week? I am well. It is Friday night, which is something that we've never done before. We usually record earlier in the day. But I'm glad to be here. This will give us all weekend to edit the show and get it published for Monday morning. Great. Looking forward to having it released. Do you have any fun weekend plans? Nothing off the top. Oh, yes, I do. Um, I have a wedding to attend tomorrow. Um, I guess that's fun. <laughs> I would probably rather spend the weekend with an Apple II myself. I, yes, I certainly would. And they probably would notice if you snuck away to play with yours. They might. Yeah, you can't really fit one of those in your pocket conveniently. Hmm. Paul Zaleski, who lives about three hours from you, he got married last year, which was his excuse not to come to Kansas Fest. I didn't go to the wedding. Generally, during the year, I don't have a lot of contact with Paul. You know, In the month or two leading up to Kansas Fest, I'll probably email him and see what his plans are. He's somebody who tends to pop up and make himself hard to ignore and then kind of disappear for years on end. Yep. But we do like having Apple II users' voices heard on this show, and we have one with us this month. Hello, Brian Weiser. Hi, Ken. Hi, Mike. Hey, Brian. How are you? Fantastic. It's Friday, so I'm doing even better. <laughs> Great. TGIF. Now, Brian, we've had a lot of guests on the show. We've had JuiceGS staff writers. We've had Kansas Fest attendees. We've had historians, all different members of the Apple II community. People listening to the show might not necessarily know you because you haven't shown yourself at Kansas Fest, and you've submitted a picture in JuiceGS, a photo that you took, but it wasn't a photo of you. So tell us, who the heck are you? Who am I? Well, that's that's an excellent question. As far as the Apple II community is concerned, I run the Applied Engineering Repository and Beagle Brothers Repository with my friend Bill Martins. You might have uh, seen my name mentioned in relation to those two things. I've helped with other Apple II projects out in the world, like uh, helping Mike Harvey uh, with his Nibble magazines, doing some OCR work, and uh, even helped Mike with uh, Computist a bit, uh, doing some OCR work for those issues. That's right. I, I actually got an email from you a, a while back offering OCR versions of, of the, all the Computist PDFs, and that was uh, very nice. I appreciated that. That's really what I've been trying to do is help other efforts in the community and uh, supplement uh, supplement work that way. I've uh, actually helped out Bill, too, with the Call Apple magazine and converting those and extracting cartoons from things like that and Computist and other things and just trying to preserve different obscure things out there that may not have been preserved already. I'm an archivist. I'm a collector of Apple II and a lot of other things. Hmm. But uh, basically, I'm a big geek, so I, I suspect I fit in here. Oh, very well. Now, are you some sort of an archivist expert that people like Bill and Mike Harvey are coming to you for advice and help, or are you just volunteering your time and effort? Basically, I'm just volunteering my time. Uh, in other circles uh, outside of the Apple II community, I do have people coming to me. But as far as the Apple II, uh, like with Mike Harvey, as an example, I looked at what he was offering and saw that they weren't OCR'd, saw that the covers could use some work and just offered my services because I wanted to be nice and help out the community. Uh, in other cases, I have things in my collection that haven't been online, and so I just archive them and then uh, upload them, you know, try and supplement somebody else's website. But uh, with that said, if somebody needs help with something, I'm certainly happy to 
help out if I can. Well, we definitely appreciate all, all the work that you've done with uh, the various archives and websites that you've set up. Oh, thanks. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, like any good archivist realizes, you know, some of us have things that nobody else has. And if we don't preserve them and get them out there, they're just going to be lost for all time. Like uh, one of my prized relics that's you might laugh about, but uh, an applied engineering cookbook put together by the employees. Oh, wow. Uh, is, is one of the things I put up on the uh, applied engineering website, along with all the product catalogs, most of which had never been seen before at least uh, in PDF form. And I've got other obscure things. I've worked for Apple resellers in the past and, you know, collected things like uh, an original multicolor Apple, Apple logo off the dealer discs. That's uh, different oddball things. I've helped Alex Lee get scans for his upcoming book, which we all hope is upcoming. Scanning in blueprints of an Apple II GS, all sorts of bizarre things. So and I'm I'm a big software collector. I collect a lot of uh, original boxed Apple II games, utilities, uh, a lot of original Apple II systems, and some early Mac systems as well. And what is it you do by day that gives you such ample free time to help out with the Apple II community? Well, I don't know that my day job necessarily helps with that, but uh, I'm a Macintosh uh, IT consultant, so I offer uh, training, purchasing recommendations, technical support. Uh, those kind of things for individuals, businesses, nonprofits. I'm I'm involved in technology every day, and I can't seem to stop when I get home. <laughs> so. Now, where would people find you online if they were interested in uh, hiring you for these services? You know, that's an excellent question and uh, kind of funny. I'm actually a bit of uh, a recluse online. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Brian Weiser on Twitter, but. Uh, I haven't set up a Facebook page. I haven't set up my own page. About the only mention of me online would be on the uh, ae.applearchives.com uh, or beagle.applearchives.com. My other uh, love is Firefly and Serenity uh, and uh, a documentary I co-produced and directed, uh, donetheimpossible.com. So you could email me through that. Apart from that, I, I, I don't have a website, so I, I, I suspect I should work on that. So what is it that brought you to the Apple II community in the first place? How long have you been using this machine? Well, uh, when I was uh, a little kid, my dad brought home an Apple II Plus. Like any good uh, hacker I uh, or aspiring hacker, I uh, played with it. Uh, we had a couple of games. My very first game was Castle Wolfenstein, which certainly drew me uh, in. That's a favorite. Nice. Yeah. And um, thought, well, you know, I want to learn how to program in basic. So my dad gave me this book. After a couple months of figuring I must be really stupid, uh, I discovered that the book he'd given me was generic basic, not Apple II basic, which would explain why most of the programs I was typing in carefully weren't working at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got my start that way. I uh, did a little programming in basic and machine language, eventually upgraded to a 2E and a 2GS and went from there to other systems like the Commodore Amiga and so forth. Are you as dedicated to the Commodore and the Amiga as you are the Apple II? I certainly enjoyed the system as much as the Apple II. Hang up on him right now, Ken. <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> I am not involved in the Amiga, Amiga community. I'm not preserving Amiga things. So uh, Apple II is definitely my love. And we are glad to have you. Thank you. Now, I have to reveal the real reason you're on this show is to serve as a tiebreaker. 
Mike and I have never been able to agree on whether or not Joss Whedon's Firefly is awesome. <laughs> Uh-oh. I, I can tell one of you is going to be in trouble. <laughs> I think I just got myself in trouble. <laughs> Uh-oh. Obviously, I think it's uh, the best sci-fi TV series ever created. But... It was cut short before its time. Indeed. But then I'm biased. That's why uh, the Done the Impossible documentary came out, is to help tell that story. I'm actually looking at that website right now, and, and that looks like something I'd, I'd want to sit down and watch. Really? Huh. Yeah. Yep. I'm biased, but I think it's pretty cool. Well, you know, <laughs> if the show had kept going, you might not have had a documentary to produce about it. That's true. Well, I, well, I don't want to. Be, I don't want to be grateful for the show canceling. <laughs> although, although it certainly has led me to a lot of incredible experiences. I'm uh, friends with a lot of the actors. Um, brought some of them on a cruise. They're really, really great people, and it's really changed my life. Actually, I guess I have three religions: uh, Apple II or Apple, uh, Firefly, and. Um, Wait, that's only two. Yeah, basically, <laughs> basically Apple and Firefly. So, and wasn't there a fan episode that recently aired that you're on or in? Well, there's a fan-produced film called Brown Coats Redemption. It's entirely for charity, and uh, I had uh, a lot of the actors and Firefly musicians I know uh, contribute to it. So there's cameos from some of the original cast. And uh, some of the original musicians contribute scores to it as well, uh, because it is a charitable project. And I did make uh, my second acting debut in that. Hmm. Uh, I was also a background extra in the movie Serenity. You can see me on screen for a whopping two seconds. Mm -hmm. but, uh, nice. Yay. But uh, it's, been, it's been a fun ride. Lots of great people, lots of great experiences. So, Have you ever been able to sneak the Apple II onto the set? You know, I was I was actually thinking about that in preparation for this podcast. I, I should have gotten an Apple II in one of these films, but I haven't. Well, there will be other chances to do the impossible. I, I suspect you're right. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Kansas Fest is obviously the, the big Apple convention that we all look forward to every year, but uh, Ken, didn't you go to something else recently? Uh, yes, I did. I went to the Vintage Computer Festival East 7.0, which we've talked about a few times on this show. It was about four hours south of me in Wall Township, New Jersey, held on May 14th and 15th, I believe. I had been to a VCF previously, I think 2.0 or 3.0, back when it was held in Burlington, Massachusetts. And I didn't think that I might get another chance to go to VCFEs for a while, so I headed down there. It was pretty cool. They rent out the InfoAge Museum, which is actually a converted military base. So these are like former mess halls and offices that they've converted into exhibits. And they basically set up a whole bunch of card tables and rent them out to exhibitors to put on old computer displays. They had Commodores, Pets, a surprising number of Apple IIs. I saw about four different Apple IIs uh, in different exhibits. Andy Malloy was there, who was on our first episode of this show. Jim O'Reilly, a well-known K-Fester. Ivan Drucker showed up the next day, which is when I wasn't there. I was only there for the first day. This was a concern I had expressed to Ivan when he was on the show with us a few months ago. I was wondering if VCF is something that will appeal 
to an Apple II user as much as to a general retro computing enthusiast. And the show had a lot of really old computers that were doing really cool things, but I have always been so focused on the Apple II that I really couldn't appreciate them. Like somebody would say, this is a fully restored and working so-and-so machine, and everybody else would be, ooh, ah, I've never seen one of those. And I would be like, so? <laughs> and that represents my own ignorance more than anything else. It obviously was a very cool exhibit, and it's a very cool event at which to see such things. And I'm sorry that I couldn't appreciate it as much as everybody else did because I was obviously missing out. But the Apple IIs that they had on display were really cool, and they were doing some neat things. Yeah, I've heard that VCF is a lot more focused on mini computers, mainframes, sort of the, the big iron from you know the 50s and 60s and, and 70s. Did you find that to be the case? It was at the first VCF I went to six or seven years ago. This one seemed a little bit more up-to-date, I guess, more late 70s and early 80s. They did have some much older machines, but a lot of the computers were things that people in their late 30s or early 40s would recognize as having grown up with. That's a convention I'd love to go to someday. I mean, beyond the Apple II and the Amiga, I just love old computers, old technology, and I find it really fascinating. Yeah, especially somebody for you, Brian, who enjoys so many other different computers besides the Apple II, you probably would have really fit right in at this event. I emailed you about this, but I really geeked out when I went to the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Mm -hmm. They've got everything there, and I took thousands of pictures. It was incredible. VCF would definitely be a different experience. Well, if you can make it to Mountain View, you can probably make it to VCF West sometime. Oh, they've got one uh, on the West Coast, too? Yeah, they, they actually have. There's a VCF West. There's a VCF Midwest, uh, which is in Chicago. And I believe there's one in Europe now as well. Actually, I'm looking at their website, and they, as Mike said, they have VCF East, Midwest, Europa, and the original VCF, which was held in Mountain View, California, is just called VCF, not West. But it doesn't seem like they've held one in the past few years. The last one that I see on their website was held in 2007. So maybe it's on hiatus. I certainly hope it does come back because how can you not have a computer history event in Silicon Valley? That would seem like a no-brainer to me. On the most recent episode of the Retro Computing Roundtable, they were actually wishing that there was a VCF Pacific Northwest up in the Seattle or Portland area. And I think that would also be a good opportunity. Or a VCF Rocky Mountain in the Denver area. I suspect there are geeks in most states, so uh, that, that, would, that would make sense. Well, the geeks I saw at VCF were doing some very cool things with the Apple II. There was a visual matrix that somebody had set up. It was nine Apple II monitors, each one powered by a different Apple II, but they were all synchronized by a master computer, a PC that was driving them, and basically running all nine displays synchronized so that they were putting out these massive images that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see on a single monitor. It reminded me a little bit of Michael Mann's Not-A-Net, except instead of ripping out nine CPUs and building them into one parallel machine, they actually were nine separate computers, all being controlled by one master. You mean uh, uh, Michael Mann's Apple Crate? Yes. Yes, that is exactly what I meant. <laughs> it, not a net, I think, is his network tool, where you actually network various Apple II computers together. Well, in that case, maybe what I saw at VCF is more like not a net, because these were nine networked Apple IIs, except it wasn't using not a net, but it, 
I would say it was probably more like not a net than Apple Crate, wouldn't you? Yeah, I, I think so. Because if I recall in uh, KFest from a couple of years back, Michael actually had a couple of Apple IIs that were hooked together with a not a net, and they were there was a ball bouncing between the two screens of the two machines through the not a net. Yeah, almost like they were playing Pong. Right. Oh, I remember that. That was really fun. You weren't even there. <laughs> well, I remember reading about it. There's this thing called the Internet. You might have uh, heard of it. Yeah. Did you just go as as an attendee, or did you actually uh, display something? Were you there as a... Uh, God, what's the word? Vendor? Vendor, that's the word, yes. I emailed Evan about that about a month before the event to ask how I was going to sell stuff. And he said there was a consignment area for people looking to get rid of old junk. And that's not really exactly how I think of Juice GS. So he created a different category for vendors. And there were maybe three or four of us there. To my left was Leonard Herman, author of the book Phoenix, The Fall and Rise of Video Games. And to my right was Mike Will Legal, creator of The Brain Board. So I was sandwiched between them with my Juice GS magazines. And I was... Uh, passing out flyers, postcards, and free sample issues like MAD. Didn't make too many sales, but it was still great to just meet some people. And there were even people who are JuiceGS subscribers who I'd never met before, and a lot of people who are fans of the Open Apple podcast, which I was pleased to meet. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, it sounds like you had a good time. Yeah, it was good to meet all those people and to see Andy Malloy, who let me crash at his flat for the night. I also was going through the consignment area, I didn't find too much of interest. There was an Xbox 360 game that I picked up, looked at, and just kind of put down. And I don't know how I missed this, but Andy said, Ken, look at what's beneath that game you just picked up. And I went back and picked up the Xbox game again, and there was a whole bunch of Scholastic Microzine. Ooh. I was on this show just a few months ago saying, if anybody out there has copies of this, I want them. I was trying to bid on some on eBay and, and totally missed out. Somebody was even crazier than I was, so I don't own any of those. It's probably Ken. <laughs> no, I haven't bought any on eBay, <laughs> but I picked up these three. I don't think I'd ever played any of them before, so I'm not sure there's a nostalgia value there, but it's still great to bring my collection a little bit closer to being complete. I asked the guy who was running the consignment area how much, and he said, he just kind of shrugged a dollar each. Oh, nice. So I gave him five bucks, and then I told him if I was giving you what these are worth to me, I'd be giving you $50. <laughs> and I don't know if that made him feel better or worse. <laughs> but he was glad that I felt like I was getting a deal. That sounds like a pretty good score. So are you attending KFest 2011, Brian? I will be there in spirit. Uh, unfortunately, I'm obligated to go to Comic-Con. Yet again, I've got some friends getting married. As long as uh, they're getting married down there, I figured I'd go to Comic-Con as well. But uh, right now, I am threatening to go to Kansas Fest uh, 2012. You know, the Kansas Fest committee has gotten a couple of uh, disappointed emails over the years about how our dates always conflict with Comic-Con. And it's not really a conflict that we can do much about because... Our dates have always been pretty consistent. Comic-Con changed a couple of years ago to be closer to ours. And also, there's always going to be something happening some weekend. There's always going to be some conflict. And if Kansas Fest and VCF were the same weekend, that is obviously something we'd want to avoid. But Kansas Fest and Comic-Con, granted, we're all geeks, but you wouldn't expect there to be a ton of overlap. I've been going to Comic-Con probably for seven years now, and I'm ready to go to uh, K-Fest, so... 
Make make sure uh, Waz comes to 2012. We invite him every year. Good. <laughs> you know, speaking of Andy Malloy, he recently set up a new website that I want to mention on this show. It is a tribute to Ray Borel, who was a friend of Andy's. Uh, Ray was one of the pioneers of the computer industry. He set up one of the very first computer retail stores. On March 1st of 1976 in Bloomington, Indiana, he opened the Data Domain. Um, one of his earliest employees was Mike Swain, who would later go on to write the very popular book Fire in the Valley, the making of the personal computer. Have either of you ever read that? Yes. I have. That's one of my favorite books. I have it sitting on my shelf, and it's one of the biggest computer history books I've ever bought, and due to that size, it's daunted me from actually reading it. Didn't they do a revision to that just in the in the last few years? It, it seems like it went into a second edition, and I, I can't remember if they changed the content. But there was one in the one in the uh, '80s, and then there was one, I guess, around the turn of the century. Hmm. The one that came out in, I guess, '99 or 2000, whatever that was. They released it was like a special edition hardcover, which had a, a disc filled with uh, multimedia uh, interviews and pictures and things like that. And uh, that's the one that I got. And then they released the soft cover shortly after that. Something for my want list. That special edition one's really nice. Well, that author got his start as a retailer in Ray's store. And Ray and Andy first met online in 1999. Then they would meet up at the Vintage Computer Festival time and again over the years. Yeah, Ray was at VCF 2000 auctioning off his Apple One computer. So way before they were making the news at Christie's of London, Ray was out there selling off his artifacts. Cool. So he that's just how long he's been around that he was able to have an actual Apple One. Ray passed away in September of 2006 from cancer, and just recently Andy created this site in memory of Ray. It has a ton of emails, newsletters, and photos that Ray created over the years, all published online, I believe, for the first time. And it's just a fascinating look at an era of history and a person that many people may not have heard of but actually did play an important role. Uh, So if anybody wants to check out this website, the link will be in the show notes. I think that Apple One from Christie's of London has actually been in the news recently. Apparently it's been brought back to life. Um... The Cult of Mac mentioned that the purchaser actually, uh, I guess when they bought when he bought it, it wasn't in in working condition, and and so he spent some more time and and money getting it back up and running. So this Apple One is more than just a an artifact; it actually is a working computer. So it would seem, yes. Very cool. You know, I don't know how many of these parts are original. Um, I know that when it was purchased, it didn't even have the original 6502 chip in it. Uh, they didn't go into too many specifics on, on what was modified and what was replaced. I wonder if there are any working Apple Ones that are entirely original after all these years. Oh, I'm sure there are. Every now and then they get mentioned on the classic computing mailing list. Uh, there are several Apple One original owners on that list who have them in working condition. Oh my. I wonder if that's the website I was remembering that was tracking Apple Ones and who owned them or where or what states they were in. I think one of the users uh one of the the list members set that up, yeah. I know also Mike Willegal on his website does his best to track Apple One owners. Maybe that's the site Brian was referring to. Could be. Who knows? I, I still want to go to K Fest and build one if if that's ever offered again. Well, Vince Briel, who created the Apple One replica, will be at Kansas Fest this year, but he'll be running a workshop to build an MP3 card. 
He'll probably have the Apple One replica on hand for sale, but he won't be running a workshop to build it. I, I remember the year that happened. I really wanted to be there. We always want you there, Brian. Ah, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, as I recall, that Apple One that was recently powered up was bought by an Italian collector, and there seems to be a lot of interest in the Apple II over in different parts of Europe. Yeah, I was browsing through uh, Picasso web albums the other day, and I came across a series of photos taken at a museum in Paris, and it looks like they have an extensive collection of vintage computers, and, and it ranges from, you know, they have an original 1981 IBM PC, uh, several Radio Shack, Trash 80 variants, uh, Commodore Pets, but they also have a large collection of early Apple 8-bit machines, Apple IIs, and uh, Macintosh computers. And in fact, it looks like part of this museum uh, is called the Apple Museum. It's it's nothing but a uh, various uh, setup of, of those machines and, and posters. You know, there's a Mac OS 10 poster. There's a the Swivel iMac poster in addition to, you know, the, the different models that you can view. Now, I, I tried to do some further research on it, and I can't really find too many other references on the web. But if you're interested in seeing the pictures, we'll have the link in the show notes. I've always been interested in the intersection of the Apple II and museums, and I think that might be because when Ryan Suinaga came to visit me in Boston probably seven or eight years ago, we went to the Boston Museum of Science, and there was an Apple II on display there under glass. And he mentioned offhandedly to me that since he was the editor of JuiceGS at the time, he had always wanted to do a story on the Apple II in museums. And I think that's a great idea. It's one that's stuck with me through the years. But... It would require somebody either going to all these museums and researching where the Apple II has appeared in their exhibits, which would require a travel budget that JuiceGS doesn't have, or it would require multiple writers from all around the world contributing their experiences at their local museums. I wonder if this is a museum that Antoine has been to or somebody else has been to and could snap some original photos, because I'd, I'd love to learn more about how the Apple II's place in history is being observed and celebrated at these various global institutions. Well, it's interesting that you should mention that. A few years back, uh, I was in Seattle for a couple of months, and I went by there. There's a museum there near the Space Needle, and they have sort of the, an interactive kids area where, where you can do various experiments and, and sort of interact with some of the... Um, displays and they were all run by these black the, the black bell and hell apple twos yeah what year was this this would have been hmm, 98 99 maybe huh um and i i, I haven't been back since and i always kind of wonder what happened are they still there maybe they'd be interested in entertaining an offer from me for to, to buy them from them <laughs> well, leave one for me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there, there were probably ten or fifteen of these, uh, the the Darth Vader Apple Twos. We used those at my high school. I really want one. Yeah, that's one of the models I don't have yet. But uh, hey, Ken, as as far as uh, someone uh, going around uh, touring the museums, I volunteer for that job. I I've actually already done it just a little bit. I've been to the uh, Museum of American History, the Smithsonian in Washington D.C. And they have a, an Apple One on display there, at least they did five years ago. And I have pictures of that. Of course, there's the uh, Apple products at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View. And it seems like I've seen one somewhere else, but I'm not remembering offhand. Well, this sounds like an excellent head start. Indeed. Yeah, I'd love to read that article. 
So yeah, we'll, we'll have to get to work on that project. Everyone that loves museums and Apple IIs, send in your photos. Yeah, please send your ideas and contributions to editor at juice.gs. I apologize for switching hats for a moment there. This is the Open Apple podcast, not the Juice.js podcast, but we're all friends here. That's right. Now, another thing Ryan left us is a scholarship. Uh, as we mentioned last month, Ryan Suinaga passed away recently, and one of his last tweets actually was his wish to establish a scholarship to help students who want to study social work in Hawaii. And some of his friends in Hawaii have actually turned that into a reality, and there's now a scholarship through the University of Hawaii Foundation. It's called the At Arsuinaga Fund, because that was his Twitter name. It seems to be how many people knew him or at least interacted with him. And people who want to donate can send a check to the University of Hawaii Foundation. They can donate online with a credit card. Or they can actually come to Kansas Fest, because one of the traditions Ryan gave us was Krispy Kreme night. Every Thursday night at Kansas Fest, Ryan would go out and buy dozens of Krispy Kreme donuts and donate them to the already unhealthy audience at Kansas Fest. <laughs> Warm donuts, cold milk. And this year, we're going to continue that tradition. Kirk Mitchell has donated the funds for the donuts, and we are going to set up a jar. And anybody who wants to pay for their donuts by making a donation to this foundation will be welcome to do so. They can drop off checks, or they can leave cash, which will be converted into a check. And 100% of the proceeds will go to the University of Hawaii Foundation Arsuinaga Fund. Wow, that's great. That's a good cause. Somebody else had suggested creating a fund to send uh, young people to Kansas Fest, and that would be a great cause as well, and also a relevant one to Ryan's participation in the Apple II community. But when I heard that idea, I also knew that Ryan had wanted a scholarship for students in Hawaii, and I was hesitant to ask people to donate to two different causes and then splinter that cause. So I, I think this is one that's meaningful to Ryan and one that everybody who knew him, regardless of the context, can throw their weight behind. That weight being extra due to the donuts. <laughs> of course. Anyone who uh, uses an Apple II these days is probably familiar with Eric Shepard, also known as Sheppy. For many years, he owned the Syndicom brand through which he sold a wide variety of products, Apple II manuals, software, uh, hardware. And he announced recently that he has passed the torch on to Tony Diaz. Uh, Tony will now be managing Cinecom. Yeah, this will actually be the third owner of Cinecom. I believe it was originally founded by Gary Utter and Dean Esme. And I was at Kansas Fest many years ago, probably about a decade ago, when Gary was on hand to announce that Cinecom was being handed over to Sheppy. I think Sheppy did a great job with Syndicom in his years of stewarding it. He brought so many products into the fold. He actively sought out former vendors in the Apple II community and negotiated contracts to have their stuff available again, stuff from Ecosystems and the Byteworks. That was especially a big one, the Byteworks, with everything that Mike Westerfield created for Apple II developers. On one hand, I'm a little sorry to see Sheppy let that go, but on the other hand, I also know that in addition to all the amazing work he's done as a merchant in the community, he's also a fantastic programmer. The Sweet 16 emulator that he's created will hopefully benefit loads from his newfound time to dedicate himself to that project. Tony Diaz is, of course, dedicated to all things Apple II, and I think he'll do a, a great job taking over that catalog. 
I do have to say, as somebody who hasn't done business with Syndicom, but you know, has certainly been uh, reading about things going on in the Apple II community for a long time, I'm constantly impressed by how we all band together and support each other. And you know, if somebody can't do something, somebody else takes up the torch and keeps it going. We're a lot more organized than a lot of communities. I think that says a lot about us. What sort of lack of organization have you seen in other communities? The Amiga, Amiga community, for example, isn't nearly as organized, what, what little bit I've looked at it. Uh, we just seem to have more separate companies, uh, more people doing multiple projects, contributing to other projects. There's just more going on in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's obviously the passion of the users that are contributing to that. You know, much like the Firefly community, I swear that community is more passionate about, about Firefly than, let's say, the Battlestar Galactica community. Anyway, I, I I love our community, and I'm glad everybody's uh, supporting each other. Well, as far as Battlestar goes, I think probably the passion for the underdog has always been greater, and Battlestar had a full run. Firefly did not. True. And the Apple II, once the Mac was introduced, became the underdog, and we're still fighting that fight. So what sort of metric can we use to measure the success of this transition of Syndicom? Probably by Kansas Fest 2011, it's too soon to see any changes, but maybe by Kansas Fest 2012, we'll see Sweet 16 3.0? I hope so. That would be nice. And I wonder if Tony will be as aggressive in finding new products for Syndicom as Sheppy was. He did a really good job with, with the Shareware Solutions 2 catalog that, that Joe Cohn left behind and, and making sure that that information was available to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he had a lot of help with that, I think, from you and went up. Yeah. And that's just another way that this community bands together is we know that it's very difficult for any one person to do everything. So people like Brian just step forward and volunteer their time, which is great. And I think Kansas Fest really is uh, the focal point of what keeps us together, Kansas Fest and Juice GS, because without that kind of a common ground to come together, you know, certainly we'd have the news groups and so forth, but it wouldn't be quite the same. Well, I'm glad that you, even as somebody who has never been to Kansas Fest, feels that way. I'm glad that you still feel a part of this community because you are. Well, thank you. And I mean, I look at Kansas Fest as summer camp for kids, and we're all kids. We love our Apple, too. And I want to go to summer camp. One person we have coming to Kansas Fest this year is Bob Bishop, who was one of the early Apple employees. He and Steve Wozniak co-founded the R&D department for Apple. But Bob was not one of the first 10 employees. No, he was employee, what, 137 or something like that? He was up there. Yeah. Business Insider has an interesting article this month on the first 10 Apple employees. Where are they now? I definitely recognize some of the names, like uh, good old Chris Espinoza and uh, Ron Wayne was one of their uh, one of the bonus people on the list, and Waz and Jobs, of course. It's just interesting to see uh, what people have done with their lives since since leaving Apple. Were there any surprises on that list? Uh, well, there were people I was expecting to see listed who I thought might have been with Apple earlier, but must not have been. But it was uh, I found it educational. People should definitely check it out. I was uh, immediately intrigued just to see Ron Wayne there just because I met him at Macworld a couple of years ago uh, with the Welcome to Macintosh premiere that showed down there. And he was really an awesome guy, uh, really down to earth, easy to talk to. I think I chatted with him for 40 or 45 minutes uh, after the premiere. Uh, One thing people should know about, uh, going off on a slight tangent, 
but uh, Ron is working on an autobiography. I suspect it's coming out in the next few months, although there aren't any announcements on his website yet about the exact time. But the book title listed there is Adventures of an Apple Founder. You know, it just talks about his uh, time, I, I suspect, with Waz and Jobs. It also mentions he's uh, got another book coming out talking about the U.S. Constitution origins and our uh, paper currency system called Insolence of Office. Ron's still out there doing good things. I hope those books pay off for him because I've always felt bad for him. He was so close to being a millionaire, if not a billionaire. And it just sounds like that one bad decision that Ron Wayne made at the dawn of Apple Computer Incorporated has led to so many more bad decisions. There was an article on CNN a couple of years ago that said that he was basically living off Social Security and spending it at the casino hoping to get rich. Really? Yeah. It's an article that CNN published on June 24th of 2010. The very first sentence says, Ron Wayne is usually just another gambler at the Nugget Hotel and Casino in Nevada. Hmm. That really surprises me. When I was talking to him, he mentioned a lot of other business ventures that he was involved in a couple of years ago, and they sounded very innovative and uh, brilliant and still dealing with technology. He's trying to stay involved that way. But listening to him talk, you know, easy come, easy go, I think is more, more or less his attitude about it. And he, he thought he made a logical decision at the time. There were a lot of good reasons for it. Right. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I really liked Ron, and I'm really looking forward to his book. If his book is anything like him, it should be a really good read. Well, that's just it. He's been on documentaries. He has the website. He's open to talking to the press about this stuff. And you would just think that's such a nice guy that something good would happen to him. But he's quoted in the CNN article as saying that he's living off Social Security and doing a modest trade in collector stamps and coins. And that doesn't really sound like someone who, if he hadn't left Apple, would now have stock worth $22 billion, according to this article. Wow. Yeah, so I, I hope something works out for him. In fact, he recently started following Kansas Fest on Twitter. Oh, great. Wow. So maybe plan on showing up someday. I don't know. That'd be neat. <laughs> I wish we could pay him a speaker fee for what he's worth. Well, I, I was just emailing him a couple months ago, so I'm happy to approach him directly if you ever have a desire to have him out there. Oh, thank you for that connection. I wasn't aware of that. Sure. Next time you do speak to him, just please tell him that he is well thought of by the Apple II community. We appreciate everything he did and is doing. Absolutely. Thank you. Sure. I also wanted to say as a side note, I'm I'm an autograph collector, so looking at this list of the first 10 Apple employees, I was looking at it kind of as a checklist. Okay, these are the people I haven't met. These are the people I have met. <laughs> just just to make it a little fun. And I've met Ron and Waz and Jobs before, so definitely haven't met many of them. You're only 30% of the way there? Yeah, I, I, I'm a failure. I, I, I need to meet more of these people. <laughs> I still think you've met mo more than most of us. Yeah, Jobs was uh, really interesting to meet many years ago when he was at Next. He came to Utah and spoke at the University of Utah and did a whole demo about Next. And afterwards, he just hung out with the audience and you could go up to him and ask him questions. So I was just you know, standing a foot away from him talking to him. It was pretty cool. I wonder what the reception would be like if he came to Kansas Fest. You would probably see attendance increase. Yeah, non-Apple II attendance. True. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a significant increase when Waz came, and this was eight years ago before he was riding Segways and Dancing with the Stars and running Fusion I.O. 
but Steve Jobs being sort of the pop culture icon he is nowadays, Kansas Fest would probably just be swamped with people, and none of them would know what the Apple II is. But we could teach them. That's right. We could convert them to our way. That's right. You know, we've talked about Logo several times on this this podcast already, and mainly because it was the first program that I ever used on Apple II, so I have a special affinity for it. But I was browsing the, the uh, iTunes store the other day, and I came across Logo Draw for the iPad. Uh, it's a free application for your iPad. Now, it's not a full version of Logo by any stretch of the imagination. It's It's limited to a few commands, but it does give you kind of a good idea of what it's like to use Logo if you've never used it before. In my limited time with the iPad, I have found that most free apps are free because they're ad-driven. Is that the case here? I don't know. I, I think the answer is no. Let me go grab my iPad. The tutorial video didn't have any ads in it. Yeah, I don't remember seeing any, but let me get it just to verify it. I had a friend who was furious with Apple. He'd been a longtime Apple fan and basically sold his iPhone because of Apple's policy regarding apps that they were rejecting. He felt that something that is ubiquitous as the iPad, Apple has a moral imperative to make available on that system educational tools. And Apple was, in fact, rejecting educational applications that were being submitted because they violated some other principle in their guidelines, such as allowing interpreted code to be executed or something like that. That's a strange reaction. I mean, I can understand them maybe not wanting to have BASIC or something running, but not to have educational tools just seems bizarre. I think it was crossing the line toward emulators where people could run their own code, which Apple obviously doesn't want happening in their own walled garden. So I'm glad to see something like Logo being available because it's probably pretty harmless, but it's also, after a fashion, the user is writing their own code, and it is an educational tool. So I'm glad to see that the iPad can be used in that capacity, if not to the degree that my friend wished and I, I watched the little demo video on Logo Draw, having no background at all in Logo other than having heard of it before. It actually looked fun and approachable, and I actually learned a few things just from watching the video, so that surprised me. I wonder if there is any interest or a market for Apple II applications to be adapted to the iPad. Several games, of course, have been like Load Runner and Oregon Trail. But Mike Westerfield of the ByteWorks, he created a 3D logo for the Apple II GS. Something like that on the iPad would be really neat. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Do you remember Graphworth? No, I've never even heard of it. I've heard of it, but I never used it. I tried to use it back in the day, but I didn't give it too much time. But it was a, a graphic-oriented programming language that maybe is like Logo. This particular application, it's free because it is ad-driven. Aha. There are ads on the bottom of the screen there. It comes with, it looks like, yeah, 14 sample programs. You can't modify the sample programs, but what you can do is, is cut and paste out of those programs into your own, so it's sort of like having little built-in macros hmm. uh, to start with. The, yeah, the, the commands are fairly limited. Um, you, you have just the basic movements. It's, it's not nearly as, as complex as a full logo package is, but uh, it's, it's a nice introduction if you've never used it before. And the ads must be pretty innocuous if you hadn't even noticed them the first time. Yeah, I'm guessing, well, I'm guessing as part of the iPad experience, you're just kind of used to ads in certain applications. Oh, uh, okay. At least I am. I, I tend to filter that stuff out. You know, one thing I nearly filtered out when it came across my news radar was the news that the Apple II, 30 years ago, was used to make player piano rolls, the automatic sheets of music that would be played by player pianos. And the reason 
I didn't think that this was big news was because Dan McLaughlin posted this to Reddit five months ago, and the video he was linking to was four years old. And it was of something that happened, you know, 25, 30 years ago. So I just thought that people had discovered this through the years and already knew about it. But the unofficial Apple weblog, the cult of Mac, and multiple other sites all picked up this news. Like it was, oh my God, look what the Apple II did. Nobody knew this. And even the video that they were linking to was different from the one that was on Reddit, but that was still two years old. I guess this just goes to show that there is so much information out there on YouTube and elsewhere that it's very easy to overlook things only to discover them later. Well, I think a lot of these Mac weblogs especially, uh, they don't necessarily pay attention to Apple II news, and, and sometimes it takes them a while to catch something like this, and then when one of them picks it up, they all do. Well, I wonder what else we're doing that they are not aware of, that which they might think is cool. Kansas Fest? Kansas Fest was on Slashdot back in 2003 when Woz was the keynote speaker. I've submitted the event to Slashdot a couple times since then, and it never really gets accepted. Things that happened after Kansas Fest, like the Apple One image gallery I did for Computer World, or last year when I compared an, an iPad to the original Apple graphics tablet. That was on Slashdot, and that pissed so many people off. Really? I love that article. Oh, you remember that, Brian? Oh, of course. I read all your articles. Oh, thank you. Whether or not you promote them yourself. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> why, why were they upset? They were astounded that I was comparing a tablet computer to a graphics tablet because in functionality and purpose, they are completely different. They didn't understand why I didn't understand that. They said, if you want to make a, a legitimate comparison, compare the Apple graphics tablet to like a, a Wacom tablet or a Wacom tablet, whatever it is. And and I didn't. I compared it to an iPad. How dare you? Well, especially on PC World, they ran an edited version of my story, and the things that they edited out were the humor, where we make it apparent that we're aware of the distinction between the two kinds of machines. So especially PC World readers, which are more numerous than Computer World readers, were especially furious at the stupidity of this article. No, I, I really liked it because these are two products from Apple, Yes, they're different, but they're absolutely related. I mean, they, they're on the same genealogical tree. They just happen to be quite different because they're separated by a few decades. But I did notice on eBay, a few of the original Apple uh, tablets had gone off, and I was thinking of bidding on them in past, but they went for maybe 50 bucks. And I think after your article came out, another one went off on eBay and it went for significantly more. You may have had a little influence that way. Well, that may also have been the Retro Mac cast. They did a whole show dedicated to the Apple graphics tablet. True. But I think that was because they even said on their show that, yeah, Computer World made this really unfair comparison about something that we haven't done a show about yet. So maybe we should do that. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, it was a good article. Well, thank you. And yes, the Apple II can be used to make player piano rolls. So this just in. Old or new, it's still cool in Retro Views. Well, as we tend to do when we have this optional segment of the show, we have invited our guests to propose a topic from way back when that we can reminisce our favorite products of. And the topic this month is our favorite magazines for the Apple II. Unlike some people who may have only read Juice to Yes, who will remain nameless, uh, 
Uh, the first magazine I started out with was A Plus, uh, that was published by Ziff Davis in 1983. And it was more of a, I guess, a family home user oriented magazine, uh, had a lot of hardware and software reviews, general consumer oriented articles, but it was very easy, very approachable, no basic programs to type in. And, uh, my dad subscribed to it and I really enjoyed it. It was uh, a lot of fun. Actually, I loved it so much that I've recently completed a full set of that. So I've got a full run of A+, and that was not easy to do. Uh, but it ran from uh, 83 to 93. They merged with another magazine I'm sure you've all heard of, Insider. And they merged with them in 1989 because of a diminishing market. That was definitely one of my big highlights. Yeah, I think one of those magazines, I don't remember if it was Insider or A+, was published by IDG, which is the company I now work for. Oh. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think any of the original Insider or A+, employees are still around. But how was it that you went about completing your collection? That could not have been easy. I was a subscriber for a few years. I had those to start with. And basically, just getting lucky on eBay and a few uh, sellers outside of eBay, it just worked out. I've got a full run. I'm uh, trying to read one a month just to try and put myself back in that time and be a little nostalgic. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it's one way to time travel. <laughs> what about you, Mike? Uh, I kind of took the opposite approach. I preferred the more technical magazines like Nibble and, and Computist where I could go in and type in the code and, and learn how the Apple II worked. I enjoyed Soft Talk. Uh, for the reviews, and I believe it was Soft Talk that always had in the back of the magazine every month, you know, the top 10 best-selling business software, best-selling games, and um, so I enjoyed it. Uh, but the, the ones that, that really caught my eye were the ones where I could kind of use the information that was presented in the magazine to sort of get down into the, the nuts and bolts of the Apple. Yeah, I, I agree with you about computers. That was my uh, my second love. I was a subscriber to that as well. Actually, what, what got me hooked on that, a friend, like many people, a friend of mine introduced me to it, and I bought a back, or I bought a copy of Wizardry and had no way to back it up, and thought, hey, computers, they can help. So, uh, they had a lot of great articles for, uh, deprotecting original discs, and also cool things like making programs hard drive compatible and doing sheets and things like that for games. So, it was definitely a, more of a hacker-oriented publication, but I had a lot of fun with that, and, I also uh, recently put together an almost complete run of Computist. I'm missing some of the later newsprint type issues. That's another one on my bookshelf, and I've been trying to read those uh, one or two a month as well. Well, and you and I have actually exchanged a couple of emails about that. One of my upcoming scanning projects is to do a high-resolution version of, of the computer scans. Oh, cool. Yeah, and as I go through and do that, I'm sure I'll be coming across duplicates, which I'll be happy to send your way. Oh, awesome. Yeah, because I'm still missing some from uh, before it went to hardcore computing with uh, Core and what was the one before Core? Uh, well, there was hardcore computing and hard and uh, Core. Oh, And then right. hardcore computing and com hardcore computist kind of combined into computist and Core just went away after three or four issues. That's right. That's right. Core was a lot more like Insider and A+, where they had software reviews and general interest articles. Well, I'm glad you're revisiting that. Your original, uh, the original scans you did were great to have. Thank you. And uh, certainly a, a good idea to preserve your magazines just in case they ever went away unexpectedly. But right. uh, higher res is always good. 
you know, I, I, I blogged about this, but I, I started this in 98. Connection speeds were a lot slower and hard drives were a lot smaller. And so keeping the image file size as small is uh, kind of important. It's 2011 now, and I don't think that's really as much of an issue as it used to be. So it's it sort of frees me up to make the file sizes are going to be larger, but they'll be a lot higher quality. And I, I think in the end, it'll pay off. Well, that's that's great. I did want to mention, too, it's not really a, a traditional magazine, but I kind of looked at it that way. You, know, you mentioned having fun typing in programs from Nibble. Well, I had the same experience typing in programs from the Beagle Brother newsletters. Uh, and they came out about once, you know, maybe quarterly or twice a year. I'm not sure how often they came out. Uh, every time those would come, I would read them like a magazine because they were fun and had fun graphics and fun little unexpected programs. And they, they should have had a real magazine, but they were just in the software publishing business. So. Yeah, I remember in their ads, especially in Nibble Magazine, they would have at the bottom of the ads, it would have a you know a couple of lines of basic and, and no indication as to what what it did. You would type it in and find out. It was always cool stuff. That was fun. And Nibble, after helping uh, Mike Harvey with those, I definitely am intrigued uh, by Nibble and want to start reading those too. But, uh, right now, I'm waiting to get my iPad too, so I can start to read the magazines that way. Yeah, N Nibble for me was the way I learned. AppleSoft Basic and Computus was kind of the way I learned what I know about 6502 assembly language, especially through boot code tracing. Is that why you chose the Computus to be the magazine that you scanned? Actually, I, I chose Computus because at the time, I remember there were posts on CompSys Apple II and Usenet about, you know, hey, where can we get copies of Computus? Does anyone have the scan somewhere? And nobody really did. And I had a mostly complete collection at that point, and so I figured I'd just start scanning them and putting them up there. And I have, you know, a few soft talks and a few nibbles, but Computus was by far my most complete collection. And I don't, I don't know why, but for me, Computus reminds me more of my childhood than A Plus does. So I, I, I really love those. And the, the earlier issues had really cool covers too. <laughs> yes, they did. So they, they were very fun and. Little primitive, but uh, but definitely fun. Not a not a traditional A plus kind of a cover. Uh, speaking of A plus again, I remember reading on Compsys Apple II maybe six months or a year ago. Somebody posted they were they wanted to start scanning the issues in and were seeking advice on how to go about it. And I don't know if that person has started the project or if it's been forgotten. But I hope somebody uh, starts scanning those at some point. Yeah, I look forward to seeing something like this. Without sounding too morbid, one of the big roadblocks to uh, to A plus and Insider getting scanned was uh, was Joe Cohn, who absolutely refused to let his column uh, be scanned or published anywhere else. Well, that's sad. Yeah. Well, technically, doesn't the copyright still exist on his column? I suppose it does. Yes, seventy years after his death. If the issues aren't out there for people to read, then no one's ever going to read the column. So, what difference does it make? Yeah, the wonderful world of copyright that can help us and hurt us. It's such a fine balancing act. People who are scanning and preserving Apple II material are doing it because they love this material in the first place. But at the same time, they don't want to hurt the people who gave it to us. And how do you respect the material and respect its copyright at the same time? That's something that we're always struggling with. And in some cases, I think you get lucky, like we did with Computist and, and contacting uh, the publisher and getting permission to, to scan that. 
I think we were lucky with that. And it's it's neat to see now um, that Jason Scott of Text Files, who also works for the Internet Archive at uh, archive.org, is now mirroring the computer scans up on, on the Internet Archive. Oh, that's cool. Did he need to get your permission for that? He asked for permission, yeah. Uh, I don't know that I could have stopped him if, if he did, just decided to do it, but he did contact me first. Oh, that was very considerate. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad Jason got that job. He's the best person in the world for that job. I think so. Yeah, I, th- I don't know if that would be a, an article for Juiced or something like that in the future, but uh, maybe we ought to put together some kind of a list as a community of things we would like to see preserved that aren't, mm-hmm. and then put together some kind of an informal task force to try to go about you know, getting the necessary permissions and so forth. Uh, whether it be magazines or software or something like that. Well, there is the Lost Classics Project, which Tony Diaz runs. And I believe there's something similar called the Lost Treasures by Willie Yeo. Does that sound about right, Mike? Willie's website or Willie's uh, thing is called the Treasure Chest Project. Yes. Oh, right. Right. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. I've definitely heard of that. I just I haven't seen any posts from him or anything recently, so I don't know what the status is on that project. Well, I just pulled up his website, and it says copyright 1988 to 2010. Okay. So that isn't all that long ago that he was updating his website. But there are projects out there that are designed to preserve the software of the community. I don't know how actively they're pursuing stuff like this, and I do know that each project is basically run just by one person, so they certainly don't have the manpower to find everything that we want them to but as far as magazines go there are a lot of different projects out there for that it seems like apple2scans.net obviously being the one of the more comprehensive ones that i'm aware of are there other projects out there that you know of that are like apple2scans that are focused more on the publications as opposed to the software sure uh the apple2 documentation project has uh, many more scans than what you'll find on apple2scans well, there is there is another uh, another one I should mention. Of course, Bill Martin's that we all know, who you know who I partner with with the Beagle Brothers and Applied Engineering Sites. He has so many peripheral projects all the time uh, through Apple Archives or CallApple.org. Uh, Some of the names are escaping me at the moment, but I know, uh, like Programma. I know somebody on Compsys Apple II recently was wanting documentation for Programma. Well. Bill's got a Programma website. I did a little work with Bill on that. Bill seems to be actively archiving lots of obscure things like that. Maybe they're just things under the Call Apple flag, but uh, he's definitely uh, doing quite a bit. And, and in fact, he he does uh, provides a, a mirror for for my computer scans, which is nice in case something ever happens to my site. And he is also um, I I got authorization from the National Apple Works Users Group. Uh, folks to to scan and post the uh, AppleWorks forum newsletters, and he is also authorized to to host those scans as well. Oh, great! So, did you create the scans for Bill, or did he create his own? For the AppleWorks forum, I created the scans, and then he mirrored the site. Now, I, I think that I think that what Bill has done with with Call Apple and all those other projects is a really great thing, and and I hope that he continues to add to his existing archives and, and mirrors. And I hope that you and Brian both continue your own archive work as well. I plan to. I definitely will. I don't think anything could stop me. 
what's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. Well, the first thing I have to say is uh, I did not add this one to the list, but uh, Ken discovered the Ultimate Trilogy was up on eBay recently. Uh, it's actually really cool. It's got uh, the first three Ultimas in there, paper maps, a uh, nice little book, and it sold for the amazing price of $91. For anybody that's never played Ultima, it uh, definitely started uh, the RPGs on the Apple II. Really, uh, really kind of set the uh, the spirit and the tone. And three was great. I, I never played one and two, but uh... Ultima three, I think, was my favorite of all of them. I mean, ninety one bucks for the first three actually sounds like a good deal, unlike most things you find on eBay. Yeah, I th I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, you you wonder why some of these crazy people spend so much money, but uh, uh, then I guess I actually have to admit something. Uh, I'm the one that bought this. <laughs> Ah. What? You are? Yep, I, I was the winner. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny when I saw that on the list and it's like, whoa, well, uh, that's funny. <laughs> Small <laughs> world. Huh. As, I, as I said, I'm, I'm a collector, so uh, I had to have that. Hmm. It's in perfect condition. And this is the one that came with the paper maps rather than the cloth maps? Correct. Uh, and did it come with any of the, you know, the, the, the feelies? There weren't any feelies uh, with this one. It was absolutely complete, just like I went to the store back in the day and bought it. It was absolutely perfect. But the only feelies would be the paper maps, uh, if you could call those feelies. Uh, but it didn't have it didn't have anything like the Ankh or uh, the cloth maps in the later versions. But you got the games, and that's the important thing. I've got the games, and uh, it's a nice compilation. Now, why would you want two Ultima games that you never even played before? Because th the approach I'm taking to collecting is I want things that spark memories of when I was a kid, and also just the artwork, the beauty of the box and the instructions, maybe sometimes more than the game itself. So, you know, I can look at my bookshelf and have many instant memories. I'm also a bit of a completist, so I now have, I guess, Ultima 1 through 5, and Wizardry 1 through 3. I still need 4, but uh, it's just fun. Neat. Yeah, I never played Ultima 1 or 2. I played 3 and 4 on the Ape and Nintendo, but actually I think one of the first Ultimas was remade for the Apple II GS and was sold by Shareware Solutions 2, because I remember getting that for Christmas as a kid. Burger Becky actually went through and uh, I think sat down with maybe Sheppy and a couple of other programmers and uh, redid... Ultima 1 for specifically for the 2GS to take advantage of the uh, improved graphics and sound that were available on that machine. I really should find my copy. I don't know if there was hard drive installable, but it would be that would be a fun game to go back and play. Definitely. Now, and with this improved soundtrack as well, I know one of the Ultima versions supported Mockingboard. I can't remember which one, though. I know 4 did, and I think maybe 5 did as well. Do you remember if the, the music was improved in that GS version, Ken? I'm clueless. Okay. Well, I, I, I won't tell anyone. Thanks. <laughs> you mentioned superior sound from Ultima using the Mockingboard, but there's a video on YouTube that Blake Patterson found of Ultima 5 running on the Passport MIDI card. Have any of you ever actually heard of that? I haven't. No. 
I mean, I, I've heard of the card, but I've never done anything with many. Yeah, apparently Ultima Five Warriors of Destiny supported this card, in, and it's supposed to sound even better than the Mockingboard did, so I'll put that link in the show notes. Cool. Uh, there was another interesting eBay auction that was mentioned on Compsys Apple II. It's for an Apple IIc prototype, but it comes in an Apple IIe case. The seller listed it for $2,000, and it closed with no bids, which is kind of unfortunate. It looks very similar to, to what they did with the Apple the Apple IIgs upgrade, where, where you could uh, you, you had an Apple IIe case with a 2GS in it, but this is for the Apple IIc, and it was an Apple internal prototype that they used during development. So basically, it's none of the portability of the Apple IIc with none of the expansion of the Apple IIe. Exactly. Yep. This <laughs> this is something that that you would want for uh, as as purely as a, as a collector. Yeah, I remember Mark Simonson talking about an Apple IIc prototype that he was traveling with. He told that story in his Kansas Fest 2010 keynote speech, a video of which is available. It's a pretty funny story, actually. I I saw that. That was that was great. <laughs> Um, I wonder what the story is behind this machine. I wonder how the seller acquired it. Well, the description says that uh, I'm reading through it and it talks about, you know, the, you were bidding on an early prototype, blah, blah, blah. My dad, a former Apple employee, won the prototype in an internal Apple raffle after the launch of the 2C. Included with the 2C prototype is the original photocopied declaration of ownership signed by my dad and his manager, on April 8th, 1987, confirming that he won the prototype and was therefore authorized to take it from Apple. Prototype has never been used by my my dad, and there is no reason that it should not be in working order, but it is untested. It's a shame that given its lineage and authenticity that he was not able to sell it. I hope that he doesn't get dismayed by this and just junk it. Yeah, that would be unfortunate. And the thing for him to do is, you know, lower the price and put it back on, but... It doesn't look like this item has been relisted yet. Nope. Yeah, I always worry when that happens. You hope it hasn't been junked. And what do you think a prototype like that is worth? I mean, 2000 seemed a little high for a starting price to me. Maybe 1000 It's kind of that, that the eBay effect, you know. If he had started it at 50 bucks, it may have gone over $2,000. But because he started it so high, you know, that kind of scares off the, the initial interest. Yeah, the barrier to entry was very high. Yep. Does eBay let you lower the starting bid if nobody is bidding after the auction has started? I think you can make that change as long as no bids have been made. I think that's right. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah, you can you can change almost anything in there as long as no bids have been made. But if you want something that has the expandability of the Apple IIe and the portability of the Apple IIc, there is an Apple IIe system with a portable carrying case currently on eBay. It will be sold by the time this podcast airs, but... It looks like it is a wooden case with a vinyl covering, and it was manufactured by the Computer Case Company of Columbus, Ohio. So this is the actual computer with two floppy drives and a disk 2 controller card and software, including AppleWorks, with the, the case. You get everything in one bundle. And this item is being sold in Australia. It is currently going for $200.00. Australian dollars. Mike, have you ever seen anything like this before? I have. I actually have one of these uh, in the basement right now, and it's a large suitcase, basically, that's that's been modified or, or designed specifically 
to, to house an Apple II computer. The straps are positioned in such a way that uh, when you, they're, they're Velcro straps, and when you strap it down, um, the pieces fit in there very tightly and they don't jostle around when you're carrying this. Now, this, the, the case plus the 2E plus the disk drive is not light. Um, you don't want to be carrying this very far, but uh, it does provide some portability. I was kind of laughing about that. So this is the portable back then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In fact, he even lists it as a, as a backbreaker more than a laptop. I, I've never seen one before. Yeah, he even says that it may not be possible to mail this item. If the post office refuses to take it, he will refund the postage and the buyer will have to make their own arrangements for a courier or transport service. So that you weren't kidding when you said this is heavy. Yeah, it's, it's bulky, uh, it's large, and it's very heavy. But if you happen to live in the Melbourne area, this is the auction for you. Actually, I spent three months in Melbourne, Australia, 11 years ago, and there was uh, they have the Apple User Society of Melbourne, or A-U-S-O-M for short. Awesome. <laughs> nice. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, they had an Apple II SIG back then. It's no longer around, but I went to one of their meetings, and the, the funniest thing happened when I was there. I, I got there a little bit late, so I kind of snuck in the back and... You know, they all kind of just paused for a moment to look at me and then turn back to the speaker. But one guy didn't turn back to the speaker. He kept staring at me, and I didn't know why. And then finally, when the speaker was done, this guy who was looking at me, like, bent over to this briefcase he had with me, started rifling through it, and finally pulls out a copy of, the like, the September 1999 issue of Juice GS, and I was on the cover. Wow. And he said and he said, That's you, isn't oh. it? <laughs> and I'm like, Yeah, that's me. Small world. Very. Uh Kevin Noonan was also in attendance and he was somebody I had corresponded with because he actually printed some articles that I had written in his awesome newsletter. Uh, I don't know what happened to him and I'm sorry that the SIG isn't around anymore, but there definitely was once a thriving Apple II community in Melbourne and if the any of them are still out there. You know, maybe one of them is the guy selling this case. Uh, if you're new to the Apple II and you're picking up a 2GS, you may need the software to go with it. The 2GS system software is available as a free and legal download from a variety of outlets online, but it can be annoying to have to convert disk images and stuff like that. I believe you can buy the disks from uh, Eric Shepard. No, not anymore. Now you can buy them from Tony Diaz of Syndicom. Or you can buy them here on eBay, where a gentleman is selling uh, System 6.0.1 from Quality Computers. And this is going for a buy-it-now price of $30, and the auction ends on June 13th. That's a good price. That's a buy-it-now? Yes. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> Why do you seem so surprised? No, I just know what I'm going to be doing when we're finished recording. <laughs> so the, the, the uh, auction will not be ending on June 15th. Apparently not. <laughs> I think what intrigued me about that auction was the System 6 manual, which I don't have. And it even ships to Canada. Uh, Syndicom does sell this item, and they sell it for only $15, and it comes with 30 pages of documentation for some reason, they felt the need to specify drilled for notebook, not included. That seems to be a less comprehensive set of documentation than what this auction includes, which is the original System 6 manual from Apple, as well as 
some additional documentation from quality computers. I don't remember what that might be anymore. That's the System 6 book is what they're calling it. Oh, and it includes the GSOS reference manuals on CD. I wonder if that's a ByteWorks product? Probably not. I was thinking it, it, it might be the, the PDFs of the, uh, of the Addison Wesley books. That's something that Syndicom also sells, I think. They do. Hmm. So if you add in everything that this bundle includes, it's not just System 6.0.1, but the documentation and the CD, it probably is a pretty good deal. And the apparently hard-to-find Tool 219 and Tool 20. I don't know what those are off the top of my head. Yeah, I saw that as well, and that kind of threw me for a loop because I don't really know what those are. The eBay auction says they're from the FTA. Hmm. Didn't Tony Diaz uh, at one point post a list of all the, the tools? That rings a bell. Yeah, somebody did. I have a, I have a copy of that somewhere, along with some of the ones that uh, Brutal Deluxe have enhanced. At least I think they enhanced some of them. We'll try to find that and put a link in the show notes. In the meantime, if you're looking for any one of the individual items in this auction, it may be better to get them individually from Syncom. But the actual bundle is a good deal, and you have plenty of time to bid on this. Although the seller is in the United States, he also does ship to Canada, which not all eBay sellers do. So if you're anywhere in North America, go ahead for and bid on this item. But uh, taking a closer look at that um, auction of GS System 6, I thought it included the physical manuals, but it doesn't. It just has them on disk. Doesn't it show a picture of them, though? It shows a picture of them, but according to the text, it just says manuals on CD. It makes no mention of physical manuals. So I presume there are no physical manuals. Huh. I just wouldn't want anyone to make that mistake like I almost did. Are you still going to bid on it? No. Oh. Now this is from MC Price Breakers, is that right? Isn't that the seller? Yeah, he, this is a prolific Apple II eBay seller. It's interesting that the System 6 discs are such a reasonable bargain because Stephen Hirsch posted to the CSA2 news group that MC Price Breakers was also selling an Apple IIGS Vulcan Gold 100 megabyte hard drive. Stephen, or somebody in CSA2 suggested that the MC Price Breakers must have misplaced a decimal when they put this item on up for sale because it is listed as going for $1,195.95. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. That is crazy. And it's just an internal hard drive with the software from Applied Engineering and the manuals as PDF on a CD. So it's not even like a, a unopened or new in the box something. Oh, definitely not. Wow. Maybe, maybe it's so expensive because they warranty their hardware. And what sort of warranty is that? Uh, well, according to their auctions, they, they'll, they'll fix anything that they sell. I'm not sure how that's possible. but Oh, you know what? One of the reasons why this might be so expensive is because if you scroll all the way down, they list a bunch of software that they're including on the hard drive. So it comes preloaded. Oh. And I'm pretty sure that they don't have the rights to be reproducing software that's on this list. Really? Like Apple works. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's a little disappointing. I mean, MC price, and we're not going to, you know, blacklist them from our podcast because they do have some good deals, but this item in particular is 
going to have expired by the time this podcast airs and perhaps we'll be a little bit more careful about checking the copyright on items that we mentioned from them in future episodes uh this one's been relisted a few times actually so i'm guessing it'll it'll just go back up for another 30-day cycle hmm. i still can't believe the price well you know if you add in all the software i wonder <laughs> if that makes it worth it no i mean really if no <laughs> a lot of these programs you probably can't find commercially anymore but even if you could and you added in their original value i wonder what it would add up to I'm guessing not that much. Because Appleworks, for example, by itself can go for a hundred bucks on eBay. So that's like ten percent of the price right there. Still that's that's just a crazy price. Well, and that's that's Appleworks, you know, the complete set with the manuals and discs and all that. This is just installed Appleworks with PDF manuals. That's true. You're not exactly getting the real deal there. Right. Hmm. An item that I came across that was of interest to me, uh, I already own this product, so I, I don't need to bid on this particular item, but it's called the Visible Computer 6502, and basically it's a, uh, a learning tool for Apple assembly language. In addition to the manual, which is fairly similar to other assembly language uh, programming manuals out there, you also get a, a software program that allows you to enter the examples as you go through the book and shows it gives you a, a visual representation of the 6502 chip and how it's running your commands. You get you get to see all the registers and, and what's moving through memory uh, as your commands are being executed, which is neat from my perspective because I, I, I tend to be a visual learner um, and I learn a lot better by doing than just by reading. Um, and so this has been a, a neat tool that I've actually been playing with a lot recently and, and I've been learning a lot about uh, assembly language. Oh, you, you've been using it recently? Yeah, I have. Oh, wow. Yep. I, I, I seem to remember uh, learning on that when I was back in high school, so definitely a memory for me. Yeah, I, uh, for me, assembly language was, I, I learned uh, quite a bit, like I said earlier, from uh, uh, boot code tracing and computers. That was always following somebody else's code. I had never really sat down and, and learned enough to, to be able to, to write my own programs of, of that were, you know, the least bit competent. And so that's kind of what I'm looking forward to doing with this program. And given how much value you've gotten out of it, it certainly sounds like it's worth the 99 cent bid is currently being asked for. Yep. Uh, it's, yeah, we definitely need more machine language programmers. Yep. It's, uh, yeah. And, and as you pointed out, it's 99 cents starting bid. Nobody's bid on it yet. And, uh, as of today, there's three hours and twenty, three days and twenty hours left uh, on the auction. Well, I hope that whoever buys it will become a contributing member of the community. Okay, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game. Our monthly Name the Game contest challenges listeners to identify a snippet of audio from a classic or recent Apple II 8-bit or 16-bit game. Last month's game that everybody was invited to guess sounded something a little bit like this. Do either of you know what that game is? No. That would be Load Runner. That is correct. No. 
How could I miss that? I don't know. <laughs> I'm stupid. <laughs> One person originally submitted that it was Apple Panic, uh, which is a game with very similar gameplay. And I just recently became aware of a game called Miner, also by Doug Smith, who created Load Runner. Sort of a precursor. Is that Miner 2049er? Actually, it isn't. Hmm. That's a completely different game. This one is just called Miner. Hmm. M-I-N-E-R. I haven't heard of that uh, one. Yeah, I didn't realize that there was something before Load Runner by the same guy. Yeah, instead of shooting uh, his laser beam to blast the bricks, he actually had a pickaxe that he would use to move the bricks out of the way. But no, the game was Load Runner, and we had several contestants who got it right. In fact, as usual, almost everybody who does enter does get it right. So your odds of um, getting the right answer are pretty good. If you think you know it well enough to submit a guess, please do. And out of all the people who got it right, their names go into a hat. We choose one at random. And the winner this month is Brian Stirk. Yay. Congratulations. Mike, what does Brian win? And this month, Brian wins either a 20% discount or a $50 discount on any item in the ReactiveMicro.com store. The prize was provided by Henry Corbus of Reactive Micro, so we thank you, Henry. Um, Brian, we'll get you the information that you need to to get that discount. That was a really great prize uh, from Reactive Micro. Uh, I've been wanting to do business with them myself and get my Transwarp GS upgraded, so cool store. Well, it, if you had known it was Load Runner, you could have had a chance. Uh... I actually have had a, one of my Transwarps upgraded uh, by Henry, and he did a great job. I highly recommend him. Oh, good to know. Yep. And it was it's neat because this was a, a Transwarp that I had not been able to get to go faster than about 10 megahertz, and Henry bumped it up to 13 for me. So, This month's contest features a new audio clip. Here's that sound. Send your guesses to name the game at open-apple.net. You can also fill out the contact form on our website. And what will this month's winner win, Ken? The winner will win a $20 credit to anything in the Retro Floppy online store. Retro Floppy is a retailer of various cables for connecting Apple IIs to modern computers for use with ADD Pro, which is not a coincidence because the proprietor of RetroFloppy is also the creator of ADD Pro, so he knows exactly what cables and pinouts you need for any scenario, and he can provide them to you to set up your own ADD Pro uh, local area network. Now, would that be David Schmidt? That is him exactly, and he also provides service. If you don't want to buy a product, you can send him your discs, and he will convert them to disc images for you. So if you don't want to invest in the hardware, or you don't have the hardware, such as an Apple II, or you just have one or two discs, and you don't really feel the need to set up something that you can use time and again, this credit will also apply to that service as well. That's a pretty neat prize. Uh, he's a pretty neat guy. We also recently added a page to our website that outlines all the rules and regulations for Name the Game. It's nothing that you haven't heard on the show, but it's just nice to have them all outlined in one place. So if you're wondering exactly how the contest works and who is eligible and how to enter, that link will be in the show notes. Now, I've actually been playing a lot of Load Runner lately, but not on the Apple II. There's a version that came out for the Xbox 360 a couple years ago, and it's actually a lot of fun. It's very different from the original, but they recently 
came out with some downloadable content or DLC, which adds a bunch of new levels. And there are not only the action-oriented levels that we're accustomed to from the Apple II, but also some puzzle-oriented ones that really make you have to think about where to dig and how to get the gold. And it's been a lot of fun. I'm glad that they remade that. I've been playing that a bit on the iPhone with the app that came out a year or two ago. I was not aware that there was a Load Runner app on the iPhone. There is. I know that there have been some remakes of Load Runner. I don't know how authorized they are, but at least one of them got reviewed in JuiceGS. I think, it, isn't the game actually called Android? On the iPhone, I think it's just Load Runner. No, no, it's Gold Runner. That's what it is, Gold Runner. There are lots of other games we wish that were remade. And we're not the only ones thinking about that. Uh, Maximum PC just uh, put together an article on the 16 gaming classics that need to be re remade. And there are definitely some on this list that I played and loved, like Karateka and Elite and Road War 2000, Populous. Was Populous on the Apple II? No. No, but, oh, I'm sorry, that's my Amiga side leaking through. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I remember playing that as a kid as well. I just couldn't remember what system. But uh, I, I lost many uh, many happy hours to Karateka and Elite on the Apple II. What I like about this article is that at the end of each summary about why the games were great back then, they say whether the game should be remade for Facebook, Android, or Windows. And those aren't usually the platforms you think about. Usually you just think about whether or not it should be remade at all. And then if you want to get more detailed, you'd think Mac or PC. But Facebook, Android, and Windows are all such entirely different, not operating systems, but environments, that it really is worth thinking about in what context would this game prosper. I, I missed that on here. That's kind of odd. I wouldn't even think of playing these games on Facebook. Probably not the ones that we grew up with. For example, Ultima they recommend recreating it for Windows, and Karatika they think would be great for a tablet device running Android. I can't see running either of those on Facebook, but some of the games that they do think would work well in Facebook include Mule, which was for the Apple II, because that's a multiplayer game, and social networking is very similar. Was Mule on the Apple II? I thought that was a Commodore game. I think it was on the Apple II, but I could be wrong. According to Wikipedia, it was not on the Apple II. Hmm. Initially on Commodore, and it showed up on Atari, but it never made it to the Apple II. Well, still, it would do well on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, Mule was one of those that I always wished somebody had ported to the Apple II. Because it's not too late. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'll do with a visible computer. Speaking of Karatika, did the two of you ever see uh, a sequel of sorts, uh, Karatika II, The Wrath of Dude? <laughs> no. That does not ring a bell. Uh, somebody, uh, actually, uh, a friend of mine that I went to high school with uh, made a take one movie with Karataka, and he, he totally changed the flow of the story using the same graphical elements. And it was, it was actually quite funny. It was just a, just a movie, but uh, you, you should check that out if you want a little bit of a Karataka kick. Interesting. When you say it's a movie, do you mean... Like a, a self-running Apple II program, or what? Well, the do you remember the Take One program on the Apple II? I don't. Oh, okay. Uh, well, Take One was a program that you could use to make your own movies of sorts back, you know, as far as you could do movies back then, you know, animated things. 
and he took the graphics from Karataka, the individual characters and so forth, and animated them in a different way, had different things happen to them. Uh, like if I remember right at the end, the princess does something strange and might even get a spear through her or something. So he, he really rearranged the elements. So you were just watching the game unfold differently. He put a humorous spin on it. What I remember about the princess at the end was that if you if you ran into that room, and spoiler alert, if you haven't played it all the way through here, uh, if you went into back into your karate stance, she would kick you and kill you. Yes, you could definitely could not approach her with any sort of aggressive stance. No. Which is, you know, wise words for real life as well. <laughs> I suppose so. I'm looking through the list here, and what I, I, I kind of like some of their selections here. It's not just the usual. I mean, you, you do have Ultima and a couple of these others, but like one of my favorite games on the 2GS was uh, Balance of Power. That's being recommended for Facebook, which I don't really understand, but... And a game called Auto Duel. I remember I played that game for many hours. Um, they did some research here, and, and uh, looks really. Uh, the list is really good. I like it. Uh, Elite was really one of the best space uh, space flight simulators of its mm -hmm. day. Yep, had had a big following, and I played that forever. <laughs> Actually, Elite was mentioned back in January at the Game Developers Conference. The people who created it were talking about it. Um, we'll we'll post a link to that. Oh, and here's another link. I think the other link is to the, the creator's homepage. He he finally got the rights to, to release it as freeware. Oh, it's been released as freeware. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, he, he released all versions of it, I guess, now are, are available uh, free uh, as freeware, which is nice because a lot of times when you see these, these releases, it's just for the PC, you know, or, or just for modern platforms. Yeah, it was. this was released across the board for every platform. And I think Road War 2000 is one of the few SSI games I ever played, but I, I played the GS version, and it had great music, and I really got in, into the story. Cool. Another game that's being remade is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was originally a text adventure from Infocom. I don't know what the format of the new game is, but there's a teaser site up that basically just says, don't panic, and that this game will be coming soon. So the format, the platforms, etc. are all TBA. But the original game was recently mentioned in Game Informer, issue number 218. There was a brief two-page spread called Game Informer Remembers the Games That Ruined Our Childhoods. There are only five games listed, but chronologically, the very first one they list is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for the Apple II back in 1984. And the reason that this person hated it is the same reason that most of these games show up on this list is because the gamer sucked at it. <laughs> Uh, he says that he spent the first hour just wandering around the house that you wake up in, and he was just amazed by it. And then he went outside the house, and the bulldozer killed him, and he could never figure out how to get past that. And he was really disappointed that he never got to explore all the amazing venues that the box of the game hinted he would be able to enjoy. He gave up too soon. He lists all the many things he tried. It sounds like he was quite tenacious, but whatever the correct solution was, which wasn't always logical in those old text adventure games. He never f stumbled upon it. Huh. Yeah, that, that puzzle wasn't nearly as difficult as the, uh, the T and no T puzzle. I've never actually played it, so... I, I played it pretty far through, and I, I think I got stumped by the T no T as well. I think most people did, yeah. So even if he had gotten past the bulldozer, he probably just would have given up sooner or later. 
It was definitely one of the more challenging games, but definitely fun too. I love the sense of humor. Yeah, uh, Jason Scott tweeted that uh, the Legends of Zork game is shutting down. Um, and I remember when this was announced a couple of years back, I signed up for it and then never played it. Um, but at Legends of Zork was a, a it was an MMO set in the in the great underground empire of Zork. You go and and play with your other other Zork fans. Apparently, the creators at Jolt Online felt that they couldn't could no longer support it properly and, and give it the attention that they felt it needed. So they've gone ahead and closed it down. It actually shut down on May thirty first. Well, I, I, I feel really bad that I had no idea this was even out there until it shut down. Yeah, this game launched on April 1st of 2009, and I actually played it every day for about a month when it first came out. But when you think of Zork, you think of text input, investigation, and exploration. And mostly what this game was was just a mouse-driven game where you click on an area, your character goes there, you click around until you encounter a monster... The game keeps rolling dice until one of you is dead, and then you decide whether you want to continue exploring or go back to your base camp and restore your hit points. Hmm. After There was very little innovation or user agency, and I got bored with it really quickly. After I saw that link, I uh, looked up a video on YouTube, and some of the graphics looked pretty good, but it didn't convey what the gameplay was like, so... There was some beautiful hand-drawn animation to go with the game. Well, not really animation. It was mostly just stills. But it was a very pretty game. Just not a lot of substance, I found. So so not a, a lot of real links back to, to the actual Zork games. You know what? I probably spent more time playing the Legends of Zork MMO than I did the original Zork, which is pathetic. But as far as I know, there really wasn't much gameplay connection between the two. Mm. Well, maybe not that much of value was lost then. I'm sure that even if that's true, there are people out there who did enjoy it, and I'm sorry for their loss. I I guess you should have listened to our show and taken notes. I think that pretty much wraps up the show. We don't have much left on the agenda for this evening. It's funny that it, it didn't seem like May was a very busy month, but we always find things to talk about. Yeah, some definitely, definitely some very good discussion this month. I can't believe how long this ran, but it's been really fun. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Each one of these recordings gets longer and longer and longer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of our listeners was listening to our most recent, which up until now was also our lengthiest show, and he commented that as he was listening, he meant to take down notes about all the fantastic resources and topics we were discussing so that he could explore them further online. And then he went to our website and discovered the show notes, which is the blog post to which the monthly MP3 is attached. And it has a list of all the links to everything we mentioned. Last month alone, there were 70 links, which comes out to about a link a minute. So if you're curious about anything that we talk about in this show, any of the articles that we're talking about or the eBay auctions, they're all listed on there. One thing we don't talk about in the show, which you can find on our blog, is the results of those eBay auctions, usually two to three weeks after each episode. We post the results so that you can find out what happened. We don't really feel the need to talk in our show about stuff that sold a month ago. So if you're really curious to know the follow-up, it's all there. Also, a couple of other recent changes to the show. We have some new album art this month, which is courtesy Peter Neubauer, who was on our show back in April. He designed some original artwork that we're now using both as our album art 
It was handed out as a postcard at Vintage Computer Festival, and you may see it as a half-page ad in upcoming Apple II publications. So thank you very much, Peter. That's some great work that you did. Yeah, thank you, Peter. I was very impressed. And we also have some remastered interludes or introductory vocals provided by, provided by Emily Cam, who does our voices. Uh, our first take on those, didn't we didn't have access to the best equipment, so we went back and did them again, and I think they sound much better. Is there anything else we need to talk about before we wrap up? I think I'm about dead for the night. Well, thank you very much for being on the show, Brian. You've been a great guest. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a, been a real honor. I'm glad we uh, finally had a chance to talk in person. I've you know, we've, we've all emailed a bit back and forth, but it's always fun getting to talk to people, and I hope to meet you and everyone else at a future Kansas Fest. Well, as I recall, you're located in Utah, right? Yes. Well, that's not all that far from Denver. True. Hey, good point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and actually, that brings to mind a change that's coming up to the format of this show. We've been dealing with multiple time zones and Skype to get this show going because Mike is in Denver and I'm located in the heart of Massachusetts. And I've decided that that's just too much complexity for us to continue dealing with. So I'm actually relocating to two miles down the road from Mike in Denver. No way. That's great. Yeah, he's moving out here just for the podcast. That's true. That's dedication. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, the Apple II is worth it. So from now on, we're going to have to figure out some sort of way to do the show in person because I don't think Skyping across two miles makes a lot of sense. No, no, I, I'm sure we can work something out. But until we figure out exactly what that new workflow is, the July episode might be a little bit different. It might be shorter or there might not be a guest, but we will resume our usual high standards as soon as we can. <laughs> we appreciate your patience. So, Brian, thank you for being on the last episode of Open Apple. That doesn't suck. <laughs> thank you. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Brian. If anybody has any comments, complaints, or concerns, feel free to email us at podcast at open-apple.net. And as we mentioned earlier, you can find Brian's documentary about Firefly at donetheimpossible.com. Brian, thanks for being on the show, and stay shiny. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to everybody in a month. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. I have a wedding to attend tomorrow. Um, I guess that's fun. Is this an Apple II, buddy? No, no, this is one of my wife's friends. Okay. I've never met them. What is squeaking? Oh, sorry, my dog found a toy. Hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even, didn't even notice that. Over. It was not so subtle. <laughs> That's really funny. This is why we don't record live.